This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you that you've communicated truth about yourself in and through your son. I thank you that um, we have the privilege of just the, a mountain of information about Jesus Christ, uh, whether it's the book of Luke or Matthew or Mark or John or what we learn in, in the rest of scripture, Lord, you have given us <laughs> hundreds of pages about the beauty and the glory of your son. Lord, I pray as we uh, kind of embark on this journey through Luke over the next few months, that as we see Jesus clearly, we would worship him more we would desire to imitate him in the ways that we're called to and desire to trust him uh, as he is our guide, he is our king. Um, yeah, so I pray that you would just stir our hearts and give us an understanding of Luke. Help us see his glory so that we could worship you more. In your name I pray, amen. So yeah, we're starting uh, the path to glory. Sort of a sketch of Luke. And I, I, I wanted it, to say a sketch of Luke, because a lot of times when we do, you know, we've been working through Isaiah over the last few years. Uh, we read every verse, you know, we sit sometimes for two chapters, sometimes for a few verses, but we're sort of methodically making our way through every single uh, verse of the book of Isaiah. And we're just, that's why we kind of break it up in parts or, or we'd be doing Isaiah for like years straight in a row. So Luke, what, I'm, what we're trying to do, or what, what I'm trying to do, and I thought what would be helpful, um, and this is why we pass out our little journal Bibles and things like that, is I want you guys to have gone through a few months in the book of Luke and have an idea of what the whole book is about. You know, and I think we can say, well, it's about Jesus, you know? It is. <laughs> but Luke had different things to say than Matthew did about Jesus or that Mark did or that John did. And so, so there's this... So there's this whole like big picture sketch of Luke that we're trying to get. And you can put up the slide. I broke it into like five sections. You don't have to write this down, but this is kind of where we're going over the next few months. I, I, the, we did the introduction to Luke in Advent where we talked about the lowly rejoice. We, 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 we spent week after week showing that what Luke is trying to communicate is that the way to glory, the, the way to have joy and peace, the way to really... Uh, rest in who God is and what he's doing is, is through our humiliation, is, is through the reality that we need a savior, that, that we're, we're not grand, we're not on our own capable, that we need God to step into time and help us and, and lift us up. And we had this idea for the introduction to Luke in, in Advent where it was all of the lowly. It wasn't the kings, it wasn't the famous, it wasn't the unique, it was the lowly, the plain, the, 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 I think you think of Mary, just like a, a, a younger girl. The, the, it was the, those were the people who, when the Messiah came, uh, had songs of rejoicing because they saw their need for him and they, they, were, they drew near to what Jesus was gonna do. So from there, for the next few months then, we're gonna look at these four parts. And, and the, the first part that we're gonna break into this morning is, is really just gonna talk to us about kind of like the uniqueness of who Jesus is. Like, why does he have the credibility that he does? Why is Jesus our guide and not somebody else? What's, what's so special about who he is? 
And then we're gonna see him as, as we watch his story, as we watch his life unfold through the book of Luke, we're gonna see him talk about the kingdom. He's gonna talk about this is the way. He, he, he's, he's communicating to his, uh, his disciples and to anyone who would listen, like this is what my kingdom looks like. This is the path to, to true rest and peace and glory in God himself. So he's gonna, Jesus is gonna sort of explain the way for us. And then another larger section, we'll spend a little more time in this, is, is sort of the dangers. There's a, there's a big part of Luke where conflict is everywhere. People don't like what he's saying. Religious leaders are pushing back for this reason or that reason. And to the point where as he's approaching Jerusalem, as he's, as he's making his way towards the finale, towards the end of the book, his disciples are like, uh, no, we don't need to go this way. Like, this is not what we're gonna do. I, like, even the disciples who don't understand everything that's going on are like, Jesus, I can read the tea leaves. You're not real popular here. <laughs> like, if we just stayed outside of Jerusalem, it'd be a lot more comfortable. So there's all this, this conflict and there's dangers here. And I, my, my desire for kind of sketching Luke out this way is, is we talked earlier in the year, if you and I wanna enjoy more of the, the peace and the joy and the love that's in the very presence of God, if you and I wanna rest in the transcendent realities of a God that never changes and have, have contentment there and have peace there and have joy because of who God is, we need to know the path to that. <laughs> like, how do, we, how do we get there? How do we experience that? And what better way to answer that question is to see how Jesus got there. <laughs> how do we look at his life Look at the things that he's done. Look at the ways that he interacted with those around him and learn from him, not just as our savior. Yes and amen, he died for us and in our place. And I think that's what we're gonna start with, this reality that he has some credibility that you and I don't. <laughs> but also as our example. I read a book recently that said he was the smartest guy. <laughs> He wasn't just the most holy or the most righteous. He was smarter than you. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't really think about it that way. He said, Solomon in all his wisdom, someone greater than Solomon is here. Like you just don't think of Jesus. Like he knows how life works. And he's showing us, I think, in the gospel of Luke, how you and I can have a sense of the presence of God. How you and I can understand this path to glory and have more joy and peace, more love, more resting, more fullness of life in God himself. That's the that's glory that we're aiming for. And so this morning, um, we're gonna look at just two things uh, in this section that I read because we're, we're talking about how Jesus is the guide this week and next week. And I wanted to highlight a couple of things. I wanna talk about the, the uniqueness of our guide. So he is, an, in one sense, he is an example. He calls all of those who are united to him, who are part of his body, to follow in his footsteps. He says, take up my cross and follow me. So there's a sense in which he is our guide and we're following a similar path as Jesus, but he's also very unique. There's things about him that we don't share. And we wanna sort of lay the groundwork with that. And I think that gives some credibility to who he is and encourage us to then follow him on the way. Um, and then we're gonna look at our, our powerful enemy. Uh, our powerful enemy. I almost said our predictable enemy, 
because he is predictable. He kind of works the same way he's worked for, for millennia. Um, but I think that undersells the reality that there is some genuine power behind what Satan is doing. Now, you know, we believe that Jesus is more powerful, but we can't ignore the reality that we have an enemy and he is very powerful. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So I read, when we talk about how unique Jesus is, when we talk about how unique Jesus is, I started with that section. Um, thank you, Arwen, for the encouragement after doing all the son of. <laughs> I, uh, it, I, I, I felt like a little contrarian for just being like, let's read the, the genealogy because, you know, it's like the least favorite part. Um, but, but I think you felt that Luke was trying to make a point. Like, think of the work he went through Going through, at the time, this is before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they had public tables of genealogy. So you could trace, it was very important to trace back your family to, to different parts. So you would know what, part, what tribe you were in, what a land allotment you had, how you were involved or not involved in the temple. So at the temple in Jerusalem, they had public uh, records of gene, genealogical data. And that's one of the difficult things for the Jewish people today is after the temple is destroyed, they lost millennia of that public, those public records. And so all we have left of that is what is in inspired scripture. I mean, I'm sure there's other little things we've dug up, but the major portion of what we have left of that is from the Old Testament and from what we have in the New Testament. So Luke is putting all of this information together and he ends with this reality. He's the only one that says this the end of this like long list of son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, he ends with son of Adam, son of God. Because he's making a point. Son of Adam, son of God. This is the unique reality of who Jesus is and who Adam was. The uniquely created son of God. Go back, if you look in your Bibles, just flip back to where we started in the reading. Verse 21, everyone was baptized. Jesus was baptized, chapter three. The heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended. We have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. Then a voice came from heaven. Here's the Father speaking. The sky peels back and there's a crowd and God I mean, this doesn't happen all the time in scripture. He speaks from heaven to an entire crowd and what is the thing he wants everyone to know? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. He's making a statement and Luke is reinforcing that with all the things we just read. That Jesus is the unique son of God the unique son of God, in a way that was similar to Adam. In a way that was similar to Adam. Adam was, the spirit hovered and created from the dust and from the spirit of God, Adam in a unique way. No one else was made like Adam. No one else was made like Adam. And then later, when the angel comes to Mary, it's important that she's born a virgin because no one else was made like Adam until here comes the Spirit descending on Mary 
and using Mary as the mother and the spirit just creating life in Mary in another unique way. So we have Jesus and Adam as two sons of God in scripture. And that's important because they hold a special place in representing us. They're, they're unique in the fact that Adam, when Adam fell, we didn't, we didn't all live in the garden and all get tested by the trees. When Adam fell and sinned against God, what happened if we know the rest of the story? Things are terrible for us. <laughs> because of his sin, the entire world fell into chaos. As the unique representative son of God for all of creation, doing battle with the serpent and failing, brokenness, sin, death comes into the world. So we need, we don't just need another example, we need another unique son of God. We need a better representative of all of creation. Let's look at Romans 5. I have that passage on the screen. It's interesting too, Luke and Paul traveled together. So it shouldn't totally surprise us that some of the things that, some of the stories that are told in Luke and in Acts end up in some of the theology that we see in Paul, Paul's letters. But in Romans chapter five, he explains, he goes on for a little while, explaining this reality of the unique son of God, both in Adam and in Jesus. And then in verse 18, he gives us kind of a summary of his argument up until that point, which I think was a, just sort of, sort of a conclusion that, that you and I can see how unique Jesus is. Verse 18 says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, it's talking about the first Adam, the first son of God. His one failure led to condemnation for everybody. Sin came into the world because of that one representative head, that one special son of God. Now, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous the many will be made righteous. Jesus is unique. He is the unique son of God, just like Adam. It's interesting. There's a few implications of that. The uniqueness of Jesus. That means, in the same sense we could say, if Adam messed it all up for everybody, why is that fair to me? Like, why do I have to experience death and brokenness in the world because of what he did? Let's pretend for a second none of us have ever sinned. <laughs> Set that fact aside. But there's this, there's this sort of like instinct to be like, it should be all about me. <laughs> And if Adam messed it up forever ago and ruined it for the rest of us, that just doesn't seem fair. But if you want to stand in that place and say that, 
that applies both ways. This is, the, this is the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. Jesus showed up and lived a perfect life. We celebrate by taking the bread and saying, this is his body. This is perfect life. That one act of righteousness, the, the constant obedience and the, the, the fixing his eyes heavenly and trusting the God perfectly every day, fulfilling everything that God requires from the law, doing all of those things and saying, I stand and I represent you because of everything that Jesus has done. That is also not fair. We're generally okay with that side of the coin, but this is how God works through, through these representative heads. He, he's saying, Adam, who has represented all of creation, brought us all into death. And now in Christ, this, this new, unique guide who's gonna show us the way, the path to glory, we actually can rest and trust that the same reason why I experience sin and death and everything that's difficult in the world is the same reason why I'm assured to get to glory. Amen. Because I have a new, unique, representative son of God that has already done all the things that is showing me the way, but is also assuring that I get there. Just as much as Adam assured that things would be broken today. We can have that kind of confidence if we're, if we're being represented by this second Adam, by this next unique son of God, we can have all the confidence in the world that you and I will we'll, we'll follow that path to glory. One of my old pastors used to say, um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that everybody has a relationship to, with God. As heavenly father or as judge, we all have a relationship with him. And he wrote his PhD on Jesus' second Adam and some things like that. So he kind of had that topic swirling in his mind. But the, the point is that we, all, we only have two representatives. When, when God the Father looks at us at the end of time and spans all the things that we've done, there's really only two representatives that stand in front of us. It's Adam, who God was not well pleased with, or it's Jesus. He is our representative. And so I think what Paul is trying to say in 2 Corinthians, sort of the implications of this, I should have this on the screen too, but in 2 Corinthians 13, verse five, it says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? You're, you're united to that representative. If, if, you, if you see the fruit of that union to Jesus, have all the confidence in the world that you are going to follow his path to glory. God, he wants to assure us. He, wa he wants us, I mean, none of us, most of us don't have problems reassuring us that we're a part of the first Adam. You know, like everything hurts when you get older, you flip out about something when things don't go the right way. Like there, that is a result of being united to the first son of God, Adam. But he's saying, look, 
if God has worked miraculously and you are now represented by a different Adam, by the second son of God, think about that. Think about the implications of that. Think about the assurance of that. Think about how that can encourage you. What is he doing in and through you to produce faith so that you trust him? What about his word is attractive to you? What about God brings you peace and joy? What about the Holy Spirit convicts you of the sin and the things that, that you are uncomfortable with? In a sense, those are all evidences that the Spirit is united to you in working in this new life that comes through the second Son of God. And Paul is saying, pay attention to that. Like, look, look inside and see what's going on so that you can have assurance that you're now represented by this other son of God and he's working all these things in you. I think it's good as we think about the unique reality of this, this other son of God to ask yourself who, which one represents me? Which one represents me? Is the Spirit united me to Christ so he is my representative? Is he, is he producing faith and repentance? Am I, am I on this path to glory? That should be really encouraging. Paul says, what can separate me from this? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> On earth or in heaven or, or in myself or in others. If you are represented by Jesus himself, you cannot be unrepresented by him. <laughs> it should be encouraging to you. But if we ask ourselves, who represents us? If we ask ourselves who represents us and we're not certain of that, we have a measure of doubt, we have a measure of concern, worry, fear. If we're, if we're standing in the son of God that God is not well pleased in, in the first Adam, and that concerns you, that's perfect. Like that's where God wants you. Jesus says, knock and the door will be open to you. Seek, you will find. This is why we celebrated in Advent that the lowly rejoice. Or Jesus said, it's the sick that need a physician. If you're uncomfortable with the idea that you may not be represented by Jesus, go to him. Ask him for help. Ask him to give you confidence that he represents you. Humble yourself and say that you need him. That's exactly where he wants us. That's how he wants to encourage us. But if we never ask that question, if we never really reflect on who represents me, we miss out on the peace and the joy and the wonder that comes from saying Jesus does. I know I flipped my lid this morning. I know I didn't handle things properly. Thank the Lord that the second Adam is the one who represented me. Thank the Lord that the path to glory is 
is empowered by the one who's hung on the cross and said, it is finished. Thank God that there's nothing in the way of the, the peace and joy and the glory that comes from God himself that, that is, has anything to do with me because I'm represented by another Adam. I can have confidence in that and that can bring me joy and that can give me peace and that can give me confidence, as the book of Hebrews says, to approach God regardless of what I've done. We have to ask that question, who represents us? What, what's being produced in me so that we can either humble ourselves and say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. I need you to change me. I want, I want to be assured that I love your word and your gospel and your son. And he, that's the best posture to be in. He desires to stir those things up in you. And when he does stir those things up in you, we can just have confidence. We can have peace. We can have joy knowing that it's Jesus himself that represents us. This idea that Jesus is the unique son of God who represents his people is so important that it's the first and main thing the devil goes after. Like he's not a dummy. He's powerful. He exists. It's the first thing he goes after. Look at verse 20. Uh, I'm on the wrong page. Look at verse one in chapter four. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Which in the gospels, it's fascinating. The wilderness is where Jesus goes to pray and draw near to God. Regularly. Regularly goes into the wilderness to pray and draw near to God. And I think it's easy to read through some of this and be like, well, he was just like starving to death. And likely the case at 40 days of not eating and drinking. But he's starving to death, some commentators believe, so that he can spend dedicated time drawing near to God before he does battle with the devil. Dedicated time in prayer and in consideration of everything his heavenly father has said so that he was prepared to do battle with the devil. This is the son of God. 40 days of prayer and fasting. That should give you a little bit of a sense of the power of Satan. Let's keep going. Verse three, the first thing the devil says to him, if you are the son of God. Not very many verses earlier, what did God speak from the heavens and say to Jesus in the crowd? You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Satan knows that his power comes from lies. Satan knows that if he can just get you to believe anything but what God has said about you, he's on the right track. And man, our sin that's still with us helps him a lot with that. Our desires for the things in the world to satisfy us helps him a lot with that. Every Disney movie theme 
helps them a lot with that. <laughs> so it's just like kids' movies nowadays, you know? I mean, the point, the like uh, every advertisement for the next vacation you want to go on like helps you with that. Like, like everything in the world, pick a thing you like, is communicating to you through your, your own sin and through the principality and the powers of the air that what God is saying is not true. There's some real power in getting you to not believe what God is saying. Let's look at Genesis 3. We can't, we can't consider Jesus' temptation in the wilderness without going all the way back to the, the first Adam and, and his temptation in the wilderness. And that, that scripture should be on the screen. Genesis 3, we're gonna read one through seven. These are uh, also, uh, just as a helpful way, if, you're, if you have your little journal Bible, um, this is good things to write in there. Because, you know, like sometimes you're like, oh, I'm listening to people and I'm like, man, that's super great. And then later I'm like, what was that, that thing that was connected to this? And it's nice, that's why I scribble little things in my Bible so I can see that reference, I can go back to it, and I can think through it for myself. But chapter three in Genesis, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat any of the, any of the tree of the garden? I think we'll just stop there because it makes the point. Did God actually say? It's the exact same thing he's saying to Jesus. Are you really the son of God? Like I want Jesus to be like, Satan, weren't you there? Like literally this guy just opened up. I could go get you like 100 people that heard what he said. <laughs> like it's not an objectively difficult thing for him to prove in light of recent events. But everything kind of comes from that. He's like, if you're the son of God, aren't you hungry? Doesn't he care about you? Is he that good of a father? And there's a sense in which Satan is trying to do the exact same thing right now. You know, as Christians, we believe in the spiritual realm. There are angels and there's demons. The screw tape letters is a really fun, I think, pretty biblical just expression of what that could be like, but there's a lot of just guessing because we only have so much in scripture. A handful of little verses about what happens in the, this other realm. But, but Paul says that that other realm is where like a real battle is. Like the, the other realm is where the real battle takes place. Amen. And I don't think, um, you know, Satan is not omnipresent like God. He can only be in one place, however that works. Um, and I'm gonna go out on a limb. He has probably more influential people to tempt than you and I. I don't think we're on his like top 10 list of people to personally deal with. I don't know. Um, but the idea the, the whole the, the the sort of like demonic underpinning strategy, whether it's the the entry level peon demon or whatever, you know, again, these are just guessing and silly things. But there are angels and demons, there are like other creatures in another realm. The idea is that their desire and every sense of the word is for you not to believe what God has said about you. That's powerful. 
not to believe what God has said about you. Think about Jesus as your representative. Think about the, the confident reality that Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished. How many times does Satan come to you and say, is it though? Think about what you just messed up. Think about what you should have done. Is it really finished? What Paul says, where once united to Christ and joined with him via the Holy Spirit, once we've been baptized in a death like his and risen up as a new creation in Christ, nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can separate us from him. Are you sure? Do you feel that close to him right now? We have a powerful enemy. He knows what he's doing. He just needs you to not believe what God has said. You can jump into any other conspiracy theory in the world and go down the YouTube rabbit trail. <laughs> he don't care. <laughs> as long as you don't believe what God has said. As long as you don't believe what God has said. I mean, think about some of the things we've been talking about. It's our, if it's the lowly that rejoice, if it's those of us who take up our cross and, and, and suffer because we trust our heavenly father and because we have a real sense of our Unworth our, our, our stain and our guilt before a holy God, but we look to Jesus and say, he's the one that represents us. But we don't, we don't beat around the bush that we do fall short, that we do sin, that we do reject God, that we continue to rebel. If we humble ourselves and say, Lord, I am not worthy, and we go to the cross and say, this is the only reason why you would ever love me. God is saying, that's what brings you joy and peace. And Satan says, is it though? Really though? Who wants to go to my friend or my spouse and like admit that I was a failure? That's not fun. Think of all the things they did wrong too. Ooh, that's a good one. Let's just sit on that for a while. <laughs> and guess how good it feels when you start recounting all the ways you were good and they didn't come to you in humility. All he needs for you to believe is that the path to glory isn't through suffering. The path to real joy and peace definitely isn't from trusting God more and letting go. Definitely isn't from confessing and acknowledging my sin. Definitely isn't from admitting wrong in a sense where you're a little humiliated because it's not just kind of funny. You like actually failed at something. Satan just wants you to believe the lie that that's not the way. And what I would like to do as we walk through the book of Luke, as we see this unique son of God, right here, defeat Satan, a straight flex at the beginning of the story, 
bind the strong man, cast out demons, heal, but also suffer along the way. I hope he is giving some credibility to this reality that that's the path to glory. Here is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus is doing and who he is, trying to convince you that Satan is wrong. That Jesus has credibility. That he actually knows, contrary to all the things in this world that we think will make us happy and make us fulfilled and make us have joy or make us have peace, that our heavenly father who loves us actually knows that it's the very things that we suffer that will help us draw upwards and more into the peace and joy and love that's found in God himself. Jesus in his very act of walking that path and being resurrected into heavenly glory, finding peace in God himself along the way, is trying to convince you He's trying to convince you that Satan is wrong, that you can actually trust what God has said. But he is a powerful enemy, an intelligent enemy. The beauty is that God has given us the Holy Spirit. God himself. Yeah. The eternal spirit of God dwelling in us. Jesus didn't just raise up into heavenly glory to keep it all to himself. He, he joyfully poured out his, the gift of the spirit on all his people. But the spirit uses means. Like he, the spirit is also who communicated us these words. The, the authors of the scripture were carried along by the spirit as they spoke from God. So the the spirit in us is working through the word here. That's why as a church, we're very word-centric. We want want everything we do and say to be centered around what God is saying in his word because this is what the spirit has given us. And whether we're talking about that Corinthians passage or other places in scripture, I think a good thing to ask as we examine ourselves, as we prepare to do battle with this enemy, one of his minions probably, probably not him personally, as we prepare for wrestling with these lies that we're tempted to believe, is to ask ourselves, where are you susceptible to the enemy? Where are you susceptible to the enemy? Where do you not believe what God has said? And when I was asking myself that question, I was like, I don't know. God said stuff. It's all right. It's all true. You know, I believe all the time. I believe what he says. <laughs> but a, a good indicator, a good sort of like flare shot up to help us see in the dark of the ocean, like where is the thing that we're trying to get our hands on? A good flare that shoots up is saying, what takes away my joy and peace? What takes away my joy and peace? Where am I not satisfied?
I know the answer to that question, I mean, these are things we should be wrestling with. It's not just like this, this, and you're there. But then we can ask ourselves, well, what has God said? What has he said that I need to believe? Because usually when we're, we're struggling with joy or we're struggling with peace, we're not worshiping and considering all that God has said. I mean, I don't do that. That's not how my brain works. Usually I'm obsessed with something in this world and it's not happening the way I want it to happen. And so that's what I start to focus on. And I know what takes away my joy and peace at times. So part of preparing for this battle, this, this thing that, that the enemy is so powerfully good at doing is considering those things ahead of time and saying, what has God said? What are the promises he said that he'd never leave me or forsake me? I think one of the things that we often believe is that we're alone. We all have a unique way that we suffer and we feel alone. What did Jesus say before he left? I will never leave you or forsake you. Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Revelation chapter two and three talks about he just walks amongst the churches. He's around, you know? I don't know how all that works itself out. But in every sense of the word, he is present. He knows, he sees, he cares. He's there to comfort you. And Satan comes in and says, you're alone. You're alone. I just need you to believe that. If you believe that you're alone, all the rest will work itself out. I really appreciated um, Psalm 119, uh, verses 162. I'm not looking forward to preaching this psalm in the summer. I'm like, oh man, you're like, I've been bajillion verses to summarize in a sermon. Maybe we'll do a whole summer when we get there on Psalm 119. Yeah, there's 176 verses. <laughs> Here is the words of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus in the Psalms, helping us consider how to prepare, how to deal with the powerful enemy, how to deal with the, the parts of our hearts that don't want to believe what God has to say. Verse 162 says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. How many times has a particular passage in the history of your life been such an encouragement to you? Do we rejoice and praise him for that? I mean, we're gonna sing after this. And a, the part of that is God is reassuring us of the true things he said. And in a, in a really good way to, to wear that into your mind, a really good way to prepare yourself when you want to believe the lie is to sing it. <laughs> to rejoice. That's why the Psalms were rhythmic and, and, and song-oriented in the first place. My wife has this uncanny ability to like know all the words of a song if she hears it once. Like when we do trivia, I mean, I don't know if it's once, maybe it's one and a half times, but... We'll do the trivia song part, you know, and we'll just sit down and talk and give her the pen. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> so, 
and maybe that's not the same way for, I mean, I'm, I listen to an album like all day, every day, once in high school, and I still don't know the words to it, you know? But I can memorize things more easily when I sing them. And there's a lot of wonderful, true things about God that we regularly sing. And it's not just because, you know, that's what churches do. It's because God was smart and his word gives us songs and hymns and spiritual songs that we sing to one another that just like root those things in your mind. So that when Satan comes and says, hey, this is wrong, the tune, the spirit uses it and it comes to mind and you can be like, no, it's not. I trust what God is saying about me. I trust what God is saying here. 163, the next verse says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. We should take the lies that Satan tells us pretty seriously. If you're saying something about yourself or other people that God is not saying, that should concern you. You should hate that. We shouldn't entertain that idea. The next time you think I'm alone, no one sees this, no one cares, no one understands, you should say that's stupid. That's ridiculous. The, the creator of the universe has risen from the dead, received the spirit and poured it out and dwells in me. Why would I think I'm alone? And say, Lord, help me believe the words that you've said. Help me have a sense of who you are. Help me enjoy the peace and life and love that come from you because right now I'm struggling to believe and I need your help with that. He loves that. He wants to help in those things. Keep going in verse 164. It says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Seven is just a, a way to say kind of all the time. <laughs> Jesus is like, how often should we forgive? He's not telling us to get out one of those little clicker things and count, you know. He's saying all the time, all the time, 70 times seven. It's like we should be very forgiving people. We should be very much writing the law of God in our hearts and considering it and thinking about it and dwelling on it because when, when we're able to consider God's law, we're able to counter the lies of the devil. We're saying that's not true. And I love this last verse. Great peace have those who love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. Which I think we see back in Luke. Look at verse 14, chapter four, verse 14. Through all this, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And he taught in their synagogue, verse 15, being glorified by all. He had God's word written on his heart. He recognized the laws, the lies of Satan. And after 40 days of dwelling on God and almost starving to death, he was ready for ministry. And he was glorified by all. He's, it's like he stepped back into the world and said, I have peace. I didn't believe Satan. I'm ready for this. Let's do this. <laughs> and later you'll see that he set his face towards Jerusalem. 
knowing exactly what was going to happen there. And he is unique in this true reality that he's done these things as a second Adam. But what's not unique is we're united to him. He's trying to say, this is how you have peace. This is how you have joy. This is your path to glory. Don't for a second believe it works any other way. That's a lie. That won't lead to peace. So I'm excited to spend the next few months seeing Jesus on display doing all these things. Here he is crushing the head of the serpent. Where he says, binding the strong man. And now for the rest of the gospel of Luke, he's gonna plunder the house. And we get to see his path to glory. We get to see unique and wonderful things about him. But we also get to see him show us the way. He is our guide. And he's helping us along the way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we can stand confidently in the second son of God, that we can, we can struggle, we can come to you regularly and ask for your help. Um, Lord, we can often just ignore you and yet united to your son, you're working every day to draw us closer and closer to you. Paul says, where, where sin abounded, where, where the first Adam messed everything up, the second Adam brought grace that abounded more. I pray that that truth would just be something we don't forget. Forgive us, um, humble us when we believe the lie that somehow sin can abound more than the grace that's in Jesus Christ. Help, help us believe your truth through the more powerful spirit that dwells in us. In your name I pray, amen.